Welcome to Science Fiction 101, that podcast series where we explore the science fiction field from all over the place, covering the past, the present and the future. We're your hosts, I'm Phil. And I'm Colin. And today we'll be looking at artificial intelligence in science fiction. And, uh, well, there might be a little quiz coming up as well. So, uh, Colin, are you set for talking about AI? I am. Jolly good. Before we go into that, some follow-ups on last episode, where you may recall we talked about three award-nominated stories, namely Mr. Death, Proof by Induction, and the grandly titled Where Oaken Hearts Do Gather. And we got some interesting responses on Facebook. On the story Mr. Death, Dave said... Uh, It's a lovely story of a man who takes a rarely offered position as a junior reaper, like a death trainee. And he says, I love the Department of Death and the Department of Life. Jerry said, Mr. Death reminded me of It's a Wonderful Life and The Sixth Sense. And the protagonist was just like Clarence the Angel, rather than Bruce Willis. And I thought that was an interesting observation. I, I also thought it was a bit... Twilight Zone-ish. There were a couple of Twilight Zone episodes where people had a kind of a guardian angel or a grim reaper coming after them. On Oaken Hearts, John chimed in to say that it should be winner of most pretentious story title of the year. Now that's <laughs> To give it its full, full title, of course, Where Oaken Hearts Do Gather. So thank you for that. And Pete said it was more than a little bewildering He said, there is beauty somewhere in the forest of footnotes, faux internet chat snippets, and even a video, but that's really not how I want to read my fiction. Uh, The poem, or ballad itself, is fine, a stately, elegant folktale with just a bit of a sinister edge, but to be honest, it took me quite a few minutes to figure out what was supposed to be part of the story and what wasn't. And then finally, uh, on Proof by Induction, Dave outlined the story and and summed it up really quite nicely and finished by saying, I love this story. So thank you, Dave. Um, All of those comments, by the way, come from a Facebook group which reviews science fiction short stories. And I've mentioned that group before. I'll put a link to it on our blog so that uh, if people want to take a look, they can. So, on to artificial intelligence. And, well, for me, what prompted the idea of talking about this was the news. Did you see that story, Colin, about the Google engineer who was sent home to rest after uh, (laughs) suggesting that the Google AI had become sentient? I did. I did. It's really interesting because, you know, this is the something that science fiction has been anticipating for quite a while. And in real life, people have been playing at it with chatbots for, I don't know, a couple of decades. And we've all got this notion in our head that the the Turing test means that the minute one of those chatbots feels like a real person, then AI is really here. Um, I don't know about you, but I still haven't yet had a chatbot conversation where I was convinced by the bot. They, They usually trip up at some point. Yeah. Um, our local science museum had a, a copy of Eliza running. And I remember trying to talk to it 25 or 30 years ago and realizing it's it's not bad, but it's nowhere near good. Yeah, yeah. In particular, what I find when I speak to a chatbot, which is usually when I'm in some kind of customer service situation and I'm trying to get information, is that they tend to give you an answer and then when you try to clarify something or get further detail, they end up going around in circles and they keep giving you the same information again and again, rather than uh, getting the nuance of what it is that you, you're really asking for. Yes. Unconnected to the, the Google story, in the Scientific American, at the end of June, there was an article about an AI which had been instructed as follows. Write an academic thesis in 500 words about GPT-3, that's the AI system, and add scientific references and citations inside the text. And uh, it did. 
<laughs> it wrote a paper, <laughs> which was then sent out to uh, journals um, as if it had been written by a human, just to see if it could pass the test. Academic writing, of course, is usually rather obtuse. So I think it should be relatively easy for an AI to fool people into thinking that it's being clever when really it's just obfuscating. Yeah, I think the problem is that we're easily duped rather than it's actually intelligent. <laughs> that's a good point. That's a, that's a different aspect of the, the Turing test. We, we assume that it's a test of the computer, but it's also a test of us, of how stupid we are. Yeah. I, also digging around for other stories about um, AI, MIT scientists fed their AI system with violent content from Reddit and they created the they created a psychopath basically a hate bot yeah 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 i always thought that developing ai would be you know a, a wonderful thing but yeah it has the potential just to be like like anything else and be you know corruptible and negative and i hope we do it right though before we did the show we um decided to come up with a list of our favorite ais colin What's the first one on your list? I, I came up with a rather long list because I was going through everything I could remember. Mm -hmm. And it's been a topic in science fiction for so long um, that there's a whole lot to choose from. So the first one I picked was V'ger from Star Trek The Motion Picture. Ooh, fantastic. <laughs> I, I think we can go spoilers here, can't we? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So V'ger is a Voyager probe that left the star system and was found by an alien civilization that misunderstood what it was. Instead of being a probe to, to find uh, and document things, it thought it was uh, a, a crippled machine intelligence looking for its purpose. And so they outfitted it with everything it needed to go find its true purpose uh, and an artificial intelligence. And um, it eventually gets back to Earth, its point of origin, because it's, it's searching for, you know, what is my purpose in the universe? What's my creator? Am I alone? And... Uh, it refuses to believe that we made it, and bad things ensue. And, of course, famously, there's a scene in the film where Captain Kirk goes up to, goes up to the, uh, the probe and sees Vija written on the side, and then he wipes away the dirt to reveal that it really says Voyager, as if this probe is so stupid that it couldn't even clean the dirt off itself and read its own name. <laughs> a good point. <laughs> I mean, if they'd left that, that little scene out, the story still works. But when they put that scene in, it kind of makes it a bit ridiculous. Yeah, especially when everything else was so clean. Didn't Vija see every human life form as just being an infestation? Yes, the Enterprise has uh, carbon infestations. I've always been surprised that nobody has returned to Vija. If nothing else, I would have expected somewhere along the line, somebody would say Vija was turned into what it was by the Borg or something <laughs> like that, you know. I've got a much earlier instance of AI. And uh, this is, it doesn't really have a name, but in the story, uh, it's referred to as a supercalculator. All one word, supercalculator. Mm. And this is a story by Frederick Brown from 1954. Brown was famous for writing some short stories that were a page or less in length, and this is one of his super shorts. And basically, these people have built this massive supercomputer that connects. I think it's a, a galaxy-spanning computer system or something, and they, they, th um, they throw the switch to switch it on, and then they ask it the burning question that everyone's always wanted to know. And the question is, is there a God? And uh, do you know what the answer is? No. <laughs> the answer is, yes, now there is a God. Oh. <laughs> and the story ends, I've got the last couple of lines here. Sudden fear flashed on the face of Dwanev. That's the name of the character. He leapt to grab the switch. A bolt of lightning from the cloudless sky struck him down and fused the switch shut. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> wow. So, uh, so that's my first pick. What's the next item on your list? My next one comes from the movie iRobot, and it's Vicky. 
the Virtual Interactive Kinetic Intelligence. Wow. Yeah, so this is based on, loosely based on, uh, the premise in uh, Isaac Asimov's robot series, which have the three robotic laws. Yes. And the laws are, a robot shall not harm a, cu- a human or allow a human to come to harm. Uh, a robot has to follow all instructions from it by humans. And the third one is, is that the robot shall not allow itself to come to harm. Yeah. So there's this clear hu- uh, hierarchy in what the laws are. Vicky decides that the best way to solve and follow the first law is to actually protect humans from their cells because they're destructive. And it starts taking over the world. <laughs> now, this is not from, not directly from any Isaac Asimov story. It's mentioned kind of tangentially in The Evitable Conflict and Robots and Empire. But yeah, again, it's another artificial intelligence that is protecting humans from themselves. Well, that's something. <laughs> as opposed to others which are just out to kill. Well, in fact, even as, as Asimov began to write more and more of these stories, he developed a zeroth law. Yes. Can you remember what it is? Because I can't. It's the, uh, well, it's the predecessor to the ones that humans have to be protected. Mm-hmm. And it's that humanity has to be protected. And it's the concept of um, the many versus the few. Yeah. So if you're in a situation where, uh, for example, if you had to save five humans or one human, the right thing to do is to save five. It's, it's interesting. Uh, the robot that invents the zeroth law cannot handle that concept. And so it actually ends up modifying another robot that is, has a more advanced cybernetic brain that can. Mm-hmm. And those two robots are Giscard, the one with telepathic powers, and Daniel Oliva who was the uh, robotic partner of the detective uh, Bailey in the main robot novels. And later on, as he's bridging into his Empire series, Daniel Oliva kind of becomes this, like a guardian of humanity. And so it's uh, developed that he is the person that helps the character who develops psychohistory. And then in the final set of foundation novels, he is trying to set up a way to protect humanity forever in the future. Wow. And have you read all of those? I have, which is why I know this. Fantastic. I've, I've always been too scared to go there because there's so many of them. Um, speaking of Asimov, that reminds me of Clark. We've got to have some Arthur C. Clarke. So my second pick for interesting AI is HAL, of course, HAL 9000 from 2001 A Space Odyssey. And I can never remember what HAL stands for, so I had to look it up to remind me, and apparently it stands for Heuristically Programmed Algorithmic Computer. And then, of course, you have to wonder what does heuristically mean. And uh, just this morning I was re-watching Colossus, the Forbin project, and there's a little bit in there where Forbin um, refers to Colossus as heuristic or, or heuristically programmed. And the president says, whoa, hold on a minute there, Dr. Forbin. Uh, we don't all know what these terms mean. And everyone in the room has a little, a little chuckle. Um, I, but I can't remember whether they actually defined it in the end. But uh, HAL is a heuristically programmed algorithmic computer. And, of course, HAL is arguably the most interesting character in 2001 because all the humans in the film are deliberately depicted in this very uh, very played-down, undramatic way, um, inspired uh, allegedly by uh, Stanley Kubrick's observation of real-life astronauts, you know, that they appeared to be unemotional, uninvolved, um, logical, um, proceeding, not not in a slow way from A to B, but in a methodical way. And um, you, you couldn't really disturb an astronaut because they were unflappable in real life. And so his film astronauts were unflappable. And the only character who has any emotional response that we can see is Hal. And of course, the there are various scenes in the film which are quite powerful, one of which is where Hal kills an astronaut and then 
prevents another astronaut from coming on board the spaceship. Um, that, that famous line, open the pod bay doors, please, Hal. And, uh, of course, in the end, they have to pull the plug. And that's really the most emotionally impactful scene in the entire film is when we see Hal slowly being reduced from an articulate intelligence into this very slow thing that can just recite Daisy Daisy. Um, I've always been very impressed by Hal, and I know that Clark goes into a bit more detail on his background in the book and also in the sequel, 2010, mm -hmm. but I, I still love the film version because he's the most interesting character. What do you think of Hal? Hal scared the living daylights out of me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't mind if a computer has agency to a certain degree, but uh, I want it to do what it needs to do. But the problem, of course, from, from a story point of view, the problem uh, was that Hal had been programmed with what it needed to do, but it had been programmed with kind of conflicting information. It had been given a secret uh, which it wasn't supposed to disclose to anybody, and that's what made it neurotic. But um, apparently, at the premiere of the film, I might have said this in an earlier episode when we talked about 2001, but apparently at the premiere of the film, during the interval, Arthur C. Clarke uh, went out of the theatre, and so did Isaac Asimov. And Asimov came running up to Clarke and saying, "He's Hal has broken first law. <laughs> <laughs> so what's the next on your list? The next one is written by a local Portland author named Daniel H. Wilson. It's uh, he, he writes very well, a lot of th technological thrillers. So I'm thinking of Arcos from the Robopocalypse, Robogenesis uh, two, two book series. Mm -hmm. And it, it has a standard story. It's artificial intelligence goes mad and tries to take over the world. Although in the end, we learn that uh, that the first one that tries to take over the world was really trying to save humanity from the second one, which was going to try and take over the world. <laughs> and uh, initially, while some of the ways that it tries to take over the world are almost comical, like if I remember correctly, and it's been a while, uh, in one scene, somebody gets the, the snot beat out of them by an ice cream machine. <laughs> in the end... They're not only taking over existing machines and computers, they're developing other new war machines to try and stop the humans. And that, that gets rather inventive and scary. That's an interesting one. I, I wasn't um, familiar with that. So that's another, another one to add to the list of must-read one day. If you were going to pick a Daniel H. Wilson book, I, I would recommend doing The Andromeda Evolution, okay. which is the authorized sequel to The Andromeda Strain. Oh, yes, you've mentioned that before. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my next pick is, uh, I, well, I already let the cat out of the bag just now. It's Colossus uh, from the film Colossus, also known as Colossus, the Forbin Project. A 1969 film based on a D.F. Jones novel from 1966. I did read the novel once a long time ago. Um, I can't remember much about the novel um, my memories are sort of crammed more with the film especially today because i rewatched it this morning i just um felt that i would because i had the blu-ray sitting there on the pile of films to be watched and uh, colossus for those who don't know uh, it was made in the late 60s and it's very much based around the technology of the time but it's quite a convincing portrayal of a computer which is designed to protect us from atomic war, basically. It's got all kinds of inputs from all kinds of sensors and sources of information. And it is designed completely to protect us to the extent that the president of the US says, this is what we're doing now. And he announces it to the public that from now we're switching on this Colossus and we are safe and everyone cheers and thinks, what a wonderful thing this is, a wonderful new world with this supercomputer to protect us. Unfortunately, within minutes of switching it on, Colossus reports that it's found another system. And there is another computer, almost identical to Colossus, and it's called Guardian, and it's in the Soviet Union. Yep. So, 
here on the other side of the Cold War, they're doing exactly the same thing. And these two computers basically talk to each other, they learn each other's language, and in the end they insist on being connected. And if you don't connect them, um, they're going to wipe us out with some missiles. And they do actually launch a pair of missiles. <laughs> Colossus launches a missile from the US to attack the USSR, and Guardian does the, the reverse. Um, and some quick thinking has to ensue to get those missiles shot down. And basically, Colossus slash Guardian uh, wants more and more to protect humanity. And the way to do it is for it to basically take over the world. And so, again, it's a very frightening scenario. Um, and I used to think that Colossus was a bit impossible and unlikely. I think when I first saw it as a kid, I thought it was interesting, but I thought, no, computers aren't really like that. But looking at the film today, it's very clear that they had this idea that computers could talk to each other. They, there's a scene in the film where they, the, the people deliberately disconnect the computers from each other and they, the computers search for another route to communicate. And it is so much like the way the internet of today actually works. You know, if you send a, um, a packet of data across the internet, it doesn't travel from A to B. It travels by multiple routes. The data gets split up and the, the entire internet looks for the best way to route each bit of data before they're finally reassembled at their destination. And so a lot of what's in the film, although it is dated, it has a kind of plausibility to it. And what I particularly love about the film, and, and I saw this very much in the rewatch this morning, is the way it's staged and shot. Um, the film director Robert Altman is famous for overlapping dialogue and lots of things going on within the frame. But the director of this film, Joe Sargent, does the same kind of thing. And it's, it's mm. very realistic. And I think it holds up remarkably well for a film from 1969. Um, and in the end, Colossus is totally in charge of the world. And if you don't like it, you are killed, basically. So, uh, yeah, so I quite like Colossus because you have to. If you don't, it will kill you. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably listening right now. It probably is, yes. <laughs> What's the next on your list, Colin? Uh, the next on my list is also a military computer. Mm -hmm. It is the Bolo 15 Model M from the, the Bolo series by Keith Laumer. Ah. So the, the Bolo machines were really envisioned as tanks originally, mm -hmm. but the Bolo 15 Model M was the first fully autonomous one that did not need a human co-pilot. And it was you know tasked with you know protection and attack for, I think this one was pretty much American-based, Western culture-based. Uh, against an Eastern style culture, uh, and then eventually aliens. Mm -hmm. it, it's sort of like a tank, but um, w where is the AI? Is the AI physically in the in the machine that, that moves around? So this is a, a kind of a mobile AI, is it? It is. Yeah, we had talked about not doing droids or robots, mm. but you know, auto or putting an AI inside of a tank seemed to to me kind of close enough to that because the tanks were also gigantic right okay what where does the name come from bolo actually it's never never defined it's just a name it's got the the ring of reality to it you know i think anytime um anyone in a, a story invents uh, a piece of technology if they just give it a name like arcos that's okay but if they call it the arcos 14 then it suddenly, oh, it feels like it exists within a, a continuum. Do you know what I mean? And so the, yes. the Bolo 15 Model M really sounds like it's a, um, it, it, almost like a washing machine or a, um, a model of laptop that you could buy. <laughs> yeah, although this one won't wash your clothes, it'll destroy them. <laughs> well, same thing, <laughs> you know. <laughs> uh, my next one is called Harley. And that's from David Gerald's novel, When Harley Was One, which was published in 1972. And, and he did a, 
a revised version of it called When Harley Was One Release 2.0 in, I think, 1988. Um, but I don't think I've ever read the Release 2 version. I've, I've only ever read the original version. And Harley, um, it's capitalised, H-A-R-L-I-E, so each letter capitalised, and that stands for Human Analogue Robot Life Input Equivalents. So basically, yeah, it, it's a thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but at least each of those individual word make, words make sense. And the the book is really about the relationship between a psychologist and Harley. And Harley is, uh, well, obviously created, but then has to progress from a kind of machine childhood through to a machine maturity. And it's so it's the relationship between the psychologist and Harley. There comes a point where Harley does some things, people get worried, they threaten to switch it off. And this kind of scares Harley. And so he comes up with this proposal for a new thing, which he calls the graphic omniscience device or G.O.D. <laughs> and uh, so characters in the novel say, oh, the God machine. And then, no, 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 it's the G.O.D. Yeah, but everyone's going to call it the God machine. Um, yeah. <laughs> So um, they have to, I can't remember quite why, but they have to let Harley go through this. Um, but there is a concern that it's going to do something bad. And there's a, there's a little discussion in the book, which I, I pulled out this morning, um, that talks about what this G.O.D. Uh, will be. And the psychologist says, um, look, a computer doesn't actually solve problems. It builds models of them. Or rather, the programmer does. That's what the programming is. It's the construction of a model and its conditions. And then the machine manipulates the model to achieve a variety of situations and solutions. And it's up to us to interpret the results as a solution to the original problem. The only limit to the size of the problem is the size model the computer can handle. Theoretically, a computer could solve the world if we could build a model big enough and a machine big enough to handle it. So although Gerald doesn't go into the precise details of how you would program a thing like this, he's clearly got a concept of what it is that computers can do. And I, I think modern computing, um, in terms of AI, doesn't do that so much. I think we a lot of modern AI in real life is based around the idea of neural networks and machine learning. And essentially what we're asking computers to do nowadays is uh, make sense of a pattern. So we give it a pattern of inputs and we tell it we want a pattern of outputs. And it doesn't necessarily know, in inverted commas, why one input leads to one output. Um, it's simply learned the associations, you know, the combinations. Um, but in David Gerald's novel, there's this sort of higher level concept of what computers could do, and that is around this building of models. So it's quite interesting the way he does that. But overall, the book is, I think, quite an emotional book. A lot of it is written purely in terms of dialogue, and it's in block capitals, this dialogue, um, and it's, it's essentially it's what the psychologist is typing in and what Harley is typing back. But it's just presented on the page as dialogue. And it's it's very beautifully done and it's very absorbing. And I think it holds up quite well today. And I would guess that uh, Release 2 feels a bit more modern. But I haven't, as I say, I haven't read it as far as I remember. Interesting. Um, so that's my fourth item. And I'll leave it to the to the listener to read the book and find out whether Harley destroys the world or not. <laughs> it does seem that a lot of these AIs are built as villains or antagonists in the stories. That's right. Or they become villains and antagonists rather quickly. And quite often it's... My theory is that uh, it's because the programmers haven't thought it through. They've overlooked something. And the minute you, you let the computer have its own way, it sort of pounces on the 
whatever it was that was overlooked. That's why I think in real life it's unlikely that we'd get there because we'd put the safeguards in place to begin with. In in real life, we have robots in factories. That was the first place we had robots. Um, but if you've ever been in a factory with robots, you see that mostly they're inside cages uh, or there are physical barriers that prevent human beings from going anywhere near the robot. So people know that there are dangers and they've mitigated them in the design from day one, you know. But in a lot of science fiction, something is overlooked. Yeah, the uh, the Asimov stories about robots and artificial intelligences are really explorations about ways those rules can be bent and abused on a robot-by-robot -robot basis. That's right. And, and they're, they're uh, fascinating logical readings. They are, and therefore they, they are a bit like works of philosophy, because that's what philosophers aim to do you know they they start out with a set of premises and then let's explore where that leads us to and if we reach a point of contradiction then we go back and we reconsider the premises so yeah i think asimov stuff although it's it's popular fiction from the pulp age a lot of it um it's actually really very very wise and very clever what's your next one this one is might be a bit of a stretch but I think the computer on the Enterprise D is an artificial intelligence. Uh -huh. it, it's never a main character in the stories, although it does many interesting things throughout the entire series. Uh, it does you know, advanced scientific research. It does medical research. It does strategy and tactics. In one episode, when they're on the holodeck, Jordy accidentally asks the Enterprise to create an opponent that could, in theory, defeat Data. And it's where we get the Moriarty episodes. And Moriarty mm -hmm. shows every indication of an artificial intelligence. And in the episode called Emergence, the, ent the ship kind of hijacks itself to go to a nebula because it needs a component to build a component of something... Um, it's never really described as what, although we get to see it leave the Enterprise. But it kind of like births something which goes out into the, the galaxy outside of the Enterprise. I, re I remember those Moriarty episodes, because uh, I think he comes back, doesn't he? There's more than one of those. He does. But is there, is there not an episode where the Enterprise kind of takes over and becomes an intelligence? Or is that the one that you're describing? Uh, I think that's what I'm describing. On the okay. holodeck, it's represented as a train trip. Right. And by pulling various levers and things, they're trying to get to new vertiform city. <laughs> and then there's another one where, uh, let me think, the Binars hijack the Enterprise. Oh, yes. Lieutenant Barkley eventually uploads a large part of his brain into the Enterprise. <laughs> that's more of a comedy. I think it, it became a character. Um, as the series developed, and I, more so than in the original series, you know, in the the original series, the computer was a very mechanical sounding voice, and it would tend to say "working" when it was working something out. Yes. Whereas in the next generation, the computer becomes much more human, just in the way it presents itself, because it's got a more human voice. It's still a kind of regimented voice. But it sounds like a person rather than a machine. And, uh, yeah, I think it becomes a character very much. Yeah, it almost sounds like Nurse Chapel. Well, that's an amazing coincidence. And they <laughs> both of them sound like the original number one from the, the original series pilot. Yes. <laughs> In thinking of television series, and I, I by no means have seen all the anthologies or all the, the other series... Star Trek, I think, deals with artificial intelligence more than any other one I can I can think of. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And I suspect it comes out of budgetary constraints, because what they most often could only afford to do is do episodes based on the ship itself. So, um, you know, there's only a limited number of stories you can tell on board the ship. Um, and having the computer go berserk or um, be taken over is sort of a, a, a classic ploy to, to create a bottle show, a bottle episode. Yeah, yeah. So even with M5, 
M5 takes over the original series Enterprise and destroys the rest of Starfleet. Yeah, that's the ultimate computer, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. So you started your list with a Star Trek uh, character, Vija, and your fifth item is also Star Trek. So you've you've bracketed your your selections with the Star Trek universe. <laughs> I think I'm displaying my biases. <laughs> <laughs> my last one is another one that has letters to make up its name. Well, every name is made up of letters, but it's a kind of an acronym. Um, or initialism, or whatever the term is. And this one is AM, or AM, from Harlan Ellison's short story, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, which was published in 1967. And this is a story which, basically, it takes place inside the computer. I think the computer, more or less, is in charge of the entire Earth. Um but the characters in the story, the human characters, have been trapped inside for, uh, specifically, the story says, 109 years, and they've been looking for an escape. And Am basically torments and tortures the characters that are in there. Um, It twists them into something they were not. Uh, The story begins with a, uh, a dead body hanging from the rafters, and then the character, who that is, walks up to the dead body and looks at the dead body and sees that it is a replica of himself. So the computer is deliberately tormenting and torturing these characters. Um, and the title of the story, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, is pretty much the ending of the story. Um, but if you've never read it, you have to read it. It's one of the classics of science fiction. I think it was nominated for a Hugo and a Nebula, and it might have won them both. I uh, can't remember now, but it's certainly one of Ellison's award-winning stories. Am stands for, according to the story, uh, originally Allied Master Computer, uh, and then it stood for Adaptive Manipulator, and then it stood for Aggressive Menace, And then eventually it just started calling itself Am. And as the story says, as in cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. Um, And there's a little bit of back history given within the story, just enough for you to believe that this might happen. Um, And what's interesting is that Am started out as three supercomputers. There was an American one, a Russian one and a Chinese one which started talking to each other and eventually uh, the word used in the story is they eventually honeycombed the planet. So the computers formed a network that engulfed the entire planet. Now, Ellison was writing this in the 60s. It was written around the same time that Colossus, the novel, was written, but before the film of Colossus was made. So I think there's, there was very much something in the air in the 60s, that people were thinking about computers in these terms, Um, especially in terms of military computers and especially in terms of computers that would network. And, of course, you could say that's the world we actually live in today, is that we are controlled by a network of computers, and you and I right now are talking through a computer network. So, uh, yeah, maybe we have no mouth and we cannot podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know that story? Have you you read it? I have. Oh, uh, I have no mouth and I cannot podcast, or I have no mouth and I must scream. <laughs> yeah, that one. <laughs> I have read that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, yeah. Again, you know, just it's a horrific future of what could happen if we don't design the computers with the right guard bands, or if we give them too much capabilities, too many capabilities. Yes, yes. So five each there that we've come up with, and I think we could probably go on, but. Uh... I think that's enough for one day, don't you? Yeah, yeah. Except I do have a quiz for you. Oh, okay. (laughs) Straightening up and sitting up straight. (laughs) Just before we do the quiz, um, just a sort of an overarching theme. Now, this might be simply because these are the stories that have interested me and have ended up in my little shortlist there. But I think what's interesting is that a lot of these are about um, AI 
well, taking over or threatening to take over. And I think what these stories reveal is that we as a species have quite an insecurity about all of this. We're thinking to ourselves, we can make these things and we must and we do, mm -hmm. but we're kind of scared that we're going to screw up. But I think it also reveals that we have a great deal of control freakery as a species. And maybe that's a Darwinian thing. You know, maybe we're biologically programmed to protect ourselves at all costs. And therefore, the thing that scares us the most is being attacked by machines. Yeah, I, I went back into the science fiction encyclopedia and the science fiction dictionary to look at the history of artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And those two sources disagree about the earliest references to it, but they both come after World War II which is right. the first time that we built weapons on a scale that we could destroy all life on the planet. Yes. And so I wonder how much that, that knowledge of what we can do influences the thoughts of the gray goose scenario of nanotechnology, of artificial intelligences and losing control of the world or being opposed to them, yeah. uh, and in many other scenarios. That is very interesting. It, it does seem to have a... It seems to reflect the Cold War, but obviously we even when we were not in the Cold War, when, well, when we thought the Cold War was over, I think we're now back in the Cold War, but for that period from, I suppose, in the 90s when we thought the Cold War was over, um, there was still a lot of these stories going around. So I, I think they're not just a product of their time, but obviously triggered by uh, things that were going on in the real world. But it seems to me that it, our fear of machines and AI is a bit like our fear of alien invasions. You know, we have lots of stories where the Earth is taken over by Martians or Alpha Centaurans or whatever. And really, I think what's revealed in alien invasion stories is that we're afraid of someone coming here and doing to us what we usually do to others. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And that seems to be the same with the machines. You know, we, we, we treat animals badly, we treat our machines badly, and we're just afraid that one day they're going to turn on us. I would agree. <laughs> I, I had mentioned before we started recording that I just come back from vacation over on the coast, and uh, one element of that vacation was the celebration of the founding of the town that we were in by my wife's ancestors five generations okay. or four generations back yeah and part of that celebration was a land acknowledgement by two different tribes of indians that had previously occupied that area before they yeah. were forced to move inland yes yeah. and uh you know their their forgiveness and their graciousness was was really deep and appreciated I go to academic conferences and during the pandemic period, I attended some conferences online and I attended some events that were from Australia and New Zealand. And it became almost standard that every presenter at a conference would begin by recognising the indigenous population of whichever area they were from. So that's where I first encountered that as a as a thing that wasn't just being done as a token, but as being built into the way that people talk about where they live. Um, and it's interesting that I've started seeing it in American contexts now. And what you've just said um, echoes that. Here in the UK, of course, we famously went out and treated other people badly and built an empire, which we then retreated from. So we have a we have a lot of guilt, um, and I don't think we know how to deal with it. Yeah, it's a difficult thing. Let's just hope that in the future that we aren't having this conversation uh, with something that, that speaks in a very calm, measured, <laughs> artificial voice as it apologizes for, for the places we have been relocated to and the resources we don't have access to anymore. <laughs> to be sure, it will sound like Hal, no doubt. <laughs> just before we finish uh, the AI discussion. Um, I put a little notice on Facebook to say that we were going to be talking about AI and asking people for their suggestions of their favourite AI. So we've got a few responses. Um, Mike Glyer from File 770, he 
suggested as one I'm not familiar with, and I'll struggle to say this. So I'll, here goes first attempt to say this. He suggests corporate scash cash in Alexis Gilliland's Rosinante trilogy. Are you familiar with that one? No. No, me neither. So we'll need to follow that one up. Um, Seth Easley of uh, the Hugo's There podcast said, Embodied AI, do robots count? And he, I, I assume he meant robots because he spelt it uh, with a U. <laughs> and for those who don't know, that's how Isaac Asimov always pronounced robot, robot. Um, Seth says, for disembodied, I may have to go with am for... Uh, from I have no mouth and I must scream, mm -hmm. because I figure that's the most likely outcome if we ever create true AI. But actual favourite is probably Colossus. So Seth and I on the same wavelength there. Um, and then Daniel also nominated Colossus and put in a, a little quote from the film, freedom is an illusion. That's one of the things that Colossus says towards the end. And Athanasios says Hal has to be there uh, for the suggestion of feelings. And then also Deep Thought from the Hitchhiker's Guide for being a total computer despite the ultimate intelligence. And the last one he suggests is Max from the 13th floor, which I think is also a rather psychopathic um, AI. And the last one was Joe who said... Marvin in Hitchhiker's Guide is fun, <laughs> which I agree with. So thanks, everyone, for those. If you, dear listener, would like to contribute to the show or make comments or suggestions, head to our Facebook page. Uh, it's simply called Science Fiction 101, or you can head to our blog, which is 101sf.blogspot.com. But now we have an AI quiz. So I hope you're ready, Colin. I'm ready. This is taken from a website called filmstories.co.uk. And it was a long list of questions about various things, but there were 10 questions in there about AI in movies. So let's see how many of these you can get. So question one. What is the name of the computer network that initiates a future war in The Terminator? Skynet. Correct. And un unlike previous episodes where I haven't kept any count of the score, I'm going to try and keep count of the score here. OK. So Skynet is correct. Question two. Who plays female humanoid robot Ava in 2015's Ex Machina. Is that Brie Larson? No. You probably won't get it if you don't know it. Yeah, I have not seen it, so. Ah, okay. It is apparently Alicia Vikander, or Vikander. <gasps> That's right. She went on to play Lara Croft in the Tomb Raider series. Oh, yes, 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 yes. That rings a bell. So, you have one so far. Question three. Which 1951 sci-fi classic features a giant robot called Gort? The Day the Earth Stood Still. Correct. And question four. Which actor provides the voice of the Iron Giant in 1999's The Iron Giant? Wow. You would not think it, but it was Vin Diesel. It was. Very good. I didn't know that. So. I think he gets undersold because of many of the roles that he plays, that he's just some big dumb guy. But mm. he's, he actually has quite a wide range of acting ability. Yeah, I think so. Question five. Which 1980s techno thriller ends with a military supercomputer offering a nice game of chess? <laughs> that would be... That would be... War Games. Correct. And the computer was Whopper. Oh, yes. <laughs> so you've got four out of five so far. Woo! Number six. Voiced by James Spader, 
Which artificial intelligence menaces the Avengers in a 2015 Marvel film? Ultron. Correct. And the film is called? Oh, goodness. It's the second Avengers movie. Yeah. Uh, it's, I'm, I'm blanking. I don't remember. Huh? Age of Ultron. Age of Ultron. Yeah. Question seven. Which $1,000 a day robot theme park... Now, I could just stop there, but the question goes on. Which $1,000 a day robot theme park is the subject of a 1970s sci-fi thriller of the same name? Oh, Westworld. Yeah, it has to be, doesn't it? Yeah. How, how many other movies were there with a robot theme park? Boy, until you said 1970s, I had no clue. Wow. Uh, question eight. In the Matrix films, sentinels are nicknamed for their resemblance to what animal? Squids. Correct. So you're doing very well so far. Um, question nine. Leon, Pris and Zora are characters in which sci-fi film? Leon, Pris and Zora. Blade Runner. Correct. I wasn't sure about the pronunciation of Zora. I don't... Is that right? Am I saying that right? I think you are, yeah. Z-H-O-R-A. I don't think I've ever seen that name written down, you see. So you're doing very well. And now we're on to the final question. Question 10. How many Brave Little Toaster movies have been released to date? Brave Little Toaster... I have no idea. <laughs> the The only brave little toaster I can even Im imagine is I think those are children's novels, but I don't. I think I must be completely off base. Not entirely. Um, the original Brave Little Toaster was a story, or possibly a book, by Thomas M. Dish, and it was made into a film by Disney. I think, pretty sure it was Disney, and then they made two sequels so there have been three in total whoa um, i think two of them were just made for tv or direct to dvd or something so congratulations you got eight out of ten there and that means well you're some sort of expert on ai in the movies <laughs> <laughs> i may have to go watch ex machina and and uh, become more familiar with it but not Brave Little Toaster. I do have Disney Plus. It's got to be on there if Disney adapted it. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I've never seen it. Um, I, I've, I always thought it ironic that um, Thomas M. Dish's legacy was Brave Little Toaster. Because he was a... Well, uh, we talk about certain science fiction writers as being very misanthropic. Um, and he was certainly one of them. In fact, I, I, I think he was a very troubled man and i think he committed suicide but brave little toaster the disney animated film is not at all in character for thomas m dish and yet it's probably going to be the thing that he's remembered for could be a saving grace <laughs> possibly so that brings us to our sort of roundup of past present and future items have you got any past items, Colin? I have read a lot of uh, older fantasy by Patricia McKillop, who recently passed away. Mm. So The Forgotten Beast of Eld, which is just a beautifully written story. And it could fall right into the, the category we've been talking about today, about artificial intelligences that, that, that get out of control. Okay. I think you mentioned her once before. So again, that's another author on my should probably read at some point list. I happened to pull off the shelf this week an old novel called What Mad Universe by Frederick Brown. Um, what Mad Universe was written, I think, in about 1949. So it was written in the, the pulp era. And it's set in the 1940s. And it's about a pulp magazine editor who, strangely, because of a weird set of circumstances, he finds himself thrown into a parallel world where all the cliches of space opera are real. 
So it's kind of his worst nightmare because he doesn't like space opera, but uh, he finds that the world is just like a space opera. And what's what's interesting about the book is that it is clearly very knowing. It it clearly knows all about pulp. It, it knows about the cliches, and yet it is able to exploit them. And this was back in the forties, long before anybody thought of postmodernism. Um, so Frederick Brown, he was a good comic writer, um, but he also wrote some things that were a bit, uh, shall we say, psychologically appropriate as well. He was, he was very insightful, I think. Um, and I think What Mad Universe holds up because it is deliberately written in the pulp style. So you're sort of laughing with it and you're laughing at it at the same time. I enjoyed his short story, Arena. Which was ripped off by Star Trek, wasn't it? The Gorn. It was. Um, <laughs> they were afraid that it had been accidentally adapted and so paid for the rights for it just to cover things. What about present? Any present up-to-the-minute news? Uh, I recently watched two two different videos. The first one was a Facebook Ask Me Anything by Andy Ware, who who covered such varied topics as uh, whether or not he would eat a me burger, uh, <laughs> who the script writer for the adaptation of the um, Project Hail Mary is going to be, mm-hmm. and how he invented the planetary geology and biosphere of Arid. And I think I have a link to it on our, our Facebook page. So you can go watch it, learn all sorts of interesting things about Andy and how he does things and uh, why he sometimes fantasizes about eating his kid and many, <laughs> many other interesting things. Very good. The second one, if, uh, if you are a fan of various science fiction uh, series and worlds, it was a comparison of the Gunstar from The Last Starfighter uh, against the Star Fury, which is the single man fighter from Babylon 5. And it asks the questions, uh, is the Gunstar better than the Star Fury? And then it also brings in the Viper from Battlestar Galactica uh-huh. and the Jedi fighters and the X-Wing from Star Wars. So can you give us a link for that as well? Yeah, I'll try and give that uh, to you at the end of the show to put in the show notes. Brilliant. Under the heading of present, for me, I've just got an update on the awards that we've mentioned previously on the podcast. Uh, last time we were talking about Where Oak and Hearts Do Gather by Sarah Pinsker, which had already won the Nebula Award at that point for Best Short Story. Shortly after we recorded that podcast, it went on to win the Locus Award as well. So the only remaining award uh, is the Hugo. I mean, there are lots of awards in the world, but the reason we chose those stories was that they were nominated for uh, Hugo, Nebula and Locus. So, so far, we've got two out of three for the Sarah Pinska story. So it'll be interesting to see whether she can make it a hat-trick Uh, with the Hugos, which are announced in September. Yes. Uh, Any future items? I am very interested in the new Disney documentary series about ILM that's coming out. It's not directly science fiction, but I can't think of any other company which has had more effect on the, the visible, the visions of science fiction than ILM. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I've got a couple of future items here. One is one that I've referred to before, but there's a little update on it, and that is Star Trek The Motion Picture Director's Edition. The work to upgrade that from standard definition video to uh, Blu-ray and 4K was completed earlier this year, and there was a public screening. And in September, it's due out on physical media. Uh, the, The real update, though is a little snippet of information that was posted by Mike Okuda, who's one of the people connected with Star Trek. And he said that the people who did the visual effects for the director's edition upgrade have also patched up some of the visual effects in other versions of Star Trek The Motion Picture. This is going to get a bit tedious now, but there are basically three versions of Star Trek The Motion Picture. There's the original version that was released in cinemas. Mm -hmm. There's a television version that came out, I think, sometime in the 1980s, which basically was the original film, but with any additional footage they could find spliced in very badly. And then the third version of the film is the director's edition. And the 
extended version, the TV version, famously had some scenes in it that literally should not be there. Um, so there's a shot of William Shatner in a spacesuit coming out of a uh, a portal on the side of the Enterprise, and you can literally see the gantry of the studio surrounding him because this shot was never intended to be used basically i mean it was shot and it would have had some effects added to it but then they decided to scrap that footage and redo the sequence and in the redone sequence he wears a totally different spacesuit but in this tv version they stuck in this clip of him coming out in the wrong spacesuit and with an incomplete enterprise surrounding him anyway the people who've done the visual effects on the upgrade to the director's edition have also upgraded that particular scene. So if people choose to watch the extended version, the TV version of the movie, finally they can see uh, a proper shot there. Although, as somebody pointed out, he's still re- wearing the wrong spacesuit. It still doesn't make sense <laughs> for that shot to even be in the movie. But if people want to see it, they can. Two other items. One is uh, some information I saw about Neil Gaiman works coming to the screen. I mean, he's had a few things uh, adapted for TV, such as American Gods mm-hmm. and whatever the other one is called. Um, Good Omens. Good Omens. With Terry Pratchett. Yes, that's it. Yes. But coming up is The Sandman. And that's been in development hell for 30 years. And it's finally been produced for Netflix. And it's out in August. So that should be interesting to finally see a screen version of that. And also, his novel Anansi Boys is in post-production at Amazon. I don't think there's a date yet for that one. Eleven years ago now, I backed a Kickstarter for some, from someone that wanted to adapt one of his short stories into an animatic. Ah. And I think this man greatly underestimated two things. One was the passion of Neil Gaiman fans, because... It funded and overfunded. Right. The second thing was the scope of the project that he had tried to take on because he is still trying to complete it 11 years later. Whoa. <laughs> so when people complain about their Kickstarter that's, you know, a few months late or, a, you know, <laughs> running long for a year, I just wave my hand dismissively and say, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so when you invested... Were you expecting to receive a copy of it in some format that is now obsolete? No, I think they still play. We can still play DVDs. Oh, good. For now. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the final future item I've got is, and and this one is one of those that may never happen, but apparently there is a in development. There is a biopic of Philip K. Dick, and that's from a couple of people who I've not heard of. John Shestak and Michael Richter. And it's titled Only Apparently Real. Now, this is the thing that intrigued me about it, because there was a biography, sort of biography, of Philip K. Dick, published in the 80s, and it was called Only Apparently Real, and it was written by Paul Williams. He was quite a well-known journalist who passed away a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they're calling this project Only Apparently Real makes me think they are probably basing it on the book. So if this comes to fruition, that may be interesting to see. Philip K. Dick, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, of course was a prolific science fiction writer who's had a huge influence on science fiction film because so many of his works have been adapted. But he had some strange thing going on in his head where he uh, he was extremely paranoid and he variously thought that he was being spied on by governments or aliens or both. Um, so, very strange character in real life. And I think it could be very interesting to see something <laughs> made from that life story into a movie. But this is in early stages of development, so like many of these things that you read about, it just may never happen. But if it does... It could be good. So, do you have any more items? I don't. I don't. Okay. So, I think we're done. So, once again, we say thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time. We're Phil Nichols and Colin Kusky. Our theme tune is from purpleplanet.com. Look for the show notes on our website, which is 101sf.blogspot.com. 
and also find us as Science Fiction 101 on Facebook. And finally, please follow us or subscribe to us on your podcast app. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Listen Notes, the list goes on and on, wherever you find your podcasts, basically. So thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.